Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy. Thank you so much for downloading another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of AgGrad. If you've listened to our first 40-something episodes, you've heard that plenty of times, so I apologize for the constant repetition. And you've also heard my spiel about how I think agriculture is the most interesting industry out there because we solve the most complex problems to meet the most basic needs of humanity. That's my spiel. You've heard it a bunch of times, but I I feel it's always relevant to repeat because that is the reason this podcast exists. One of my favorite things about the show is every guest I get on here has a unique background and unique set of experiences. A lot of times agriculture is viewed as, you know, those people who grew up in the Midwest on a farm and never left, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Sure, there are people who grew up on farms in the Midwest and work in agriculture, obviously. However, a great deal of our industry is led by people like our guest today, Russ Conser. Russ is the CEO of Standard Soil, which is a company that utilizes adaptive multi-paddock grazing to grow grass-fed beef at scale. Russ had a long career with Shell Oil Company, and in fact, that's how I met Russ. He worked with my father-in-law at Shell, and as he started to get interested into in agriculture and the food system, uh, my father-in-law sent me some of the information that Russ had sent him and really got interested in this thing called adaptive multi-paddock grazing because I was not familiar before Russ introduced me. There's a, a fascinating TED Talk that we don't get a chance to talk about in this interview, but I would also encourage you to take, take a look at it. It's a guy named Alan Savory, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. Last name is S-A-V-O-R-Y, Alan Savory, TED Talk on the issue. But more importantly, te- check out standardsoil.com and the work that Russ and his group is doing Uh, Because I think after this interview, you're going to want to know more about this adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Enjoy this interview with Russ Conser of Standard Soil. Russ Conser, the CEO of Standard Soil on the podcast today. Russ, thank you so much for taking the time. Great to be here, Tim. If you would just start off, because I know it's an interesting story. Tell us about uh, your professional background before this business and how you ended up in grass-fed beef. Yeah, so uh, I'm an engineer by background. I actually grew up as a city kid in a farm state, grew up in Omaha. So I was around farming a lot. Um, and then I went to school in Ames, Iowa, at Iowa State, but still in engineering. And uh, so kind of doing the city kid thing. And I really fell in love with energy and and uh, chose to spend 30 years after that at Shell um, in primarily the upstream oil and gas business, as well as the uh, technology R&D group where I helped start and then later led some of our innovation and venturing programs there. So kind of spent my days for the last 15 years or so thinking about breakthrough energy technologies and explicitly investing in kind of the edgiest of the edgy stuff. And I uh, had actually already come across grass-fed beef from a personal health and nutrition perspective sometime before, but heard some audacious claims about the potential for grass-fed uh, production methods to build uh, carbon in soil and be a factor in improving soil quality and even climate change. And um, just so happened that my deep background in oil and gas used to be in measuring the properties of the deep earth 
how much oil and gas and organic matter in uh, deep shales were present in the earth. And, and so when I heard those claims, I said, well, if that's true, I might be able to go measure them. And so I started looking for data. It was kind of sketchy, but I came across data that suggested that, hey, some of these farmers doing uh, interesting things in agriculture actually are rebuilding soil. Uh, so I became involved from a uh, technical perspective, helping kind of advance the thinking and plans to go study the subject further. And then along the way, just kind of stumbled into a community of folks that allowed me to see the possibilities of actually getting out there and doing it when I started to appreciate the business implications of a different method of uh, beef production. I teamed up with a couple of the pioneers, and um, now we're setting off to go do this at at scale in the real world. And talk to us about that different method. Uh, I know uh, from studying your site, you all are big on the adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Uh, Can you tell everyone listening what that is and how that's different from any other type of grazing beef animals? Um, yeah, so, um, and, and, you know, there's nothing prescriptive in terms of recipe, but there's a set of principles that really are common across a wide array of methods. And in traditional grazing, uh, uh, we'll let uh, the cattle uh, roam free in paddocks, uh, sometimes very large paddocks, sometimes medium-sized paddocks, and then move them on some occasional basis. But basically, they have free range to go out and Uh, graze where they want to. In a multi-paddock method, uh, you kind of push it to the very extreme edge where you keep the cattle uh, together tightly and move them frequently. And in essence, you're replicating the grazing patterns that would have been naturally present when you had dense herds of roaming herbivores, bison, deer, elk. Uh, They're moving frequently with availability of forage, so seasonality and droughts, as well as predatory pressures. Um, the effect is that you get kind of a uniform grazing across an area and then long periods of rest that allow uh, soil to rebuild and grass to regrow. Um, and in the end, you end up uh, producing more forage per acre. And so it makes, uh, uh, makes uh, for a more productive business as well as with the uh, nutrient quality improving due to soil health, the forage quality improves, so the rate of gain of animals increases as well. And those those two factors together of being able to have more grass growing per acre that increase your carrying capacity and better forage quality uh, make it a more attractive business. Yeah, so you get more you get more forage, you get higher quality forage. And then talk to us also about the the overall environmental impact of of the multi-paddock grazing. Well it's still in a very um, emerging area, like I mentioned, I got into it from the carbon perspective, where indeed one of the things that was really surprising and almost profound to me, and it may sound um, silly to others, is when I uh, got some of the early soil samples um, from ranchers that were doing things differently, they looked very much to me like the organic matter uh, profiles that I would find in the organic rich shales from which the oil and gas might have been cooked in the deep earth millions of years ago. So it's like, hey, you know, this looks really, really simple from an organic uh, matter perspective. And I can kind of believe that the, the mechanisms that were being called on to build carbon were important. But what I learned as I kind of went on is um, the carbon really, uh, it, it's not so much a matter of storing it there. It's what the organic matter rich soils do for you. Um, think of it as uh, 
fluffing up the soil some. You're creating more porosity and storage volume for water. You're improving the permeability so water can get in there better. Um, you're cycling nutrients. The various forms of organic matter are all participating in exchanging uh, all the things a plant needs to grow. And in fact, it's that magic relationship between the microbiology and the soil and the plant that makes the whole thing work. It's all really driven by uh, the process by which the plants share a fraction of the um, sugars, the photosynthesis product that they make when they're growing with the microbes in the soil, that's their food. And then the microbes in the soil, the bacteria and the fungi go out and extract nutrients from the environment and bring it back to the plant um, in a symbiotic relationship where, you know, the plant shares some sugar and the, and the microbial community shares nutrients, and so both grow more. And that's what leads to this buildup of organic matter in the soil that improves all these other benefits. Now, you might imagine there's a whole bunch of other trickle-down uh, benefits, therefore, as well. So like water retention and infiltration. I live just outside of Houston. Um, used to be uh, wetland prairies. Now it's all, um, you know, what's not paved over is pretty uh, compacted soils and so we tend to get flooding more frequently here so it can uh, the improved soil quality can improve resistance to drought as well as uh, reduce flooding impact um, improve habitat and diversity um, so pollinators you know bees and butterflies get a lot of attention these days um, highly diverse forage that grows in a in a pasture that's got healthy soil is better habitat for animals small and large um, and there's really some edgy stuff out there in terms of, uh, you know, again, I'm an energy engineer by background, and I, I, I tend to think that way. But uh, basically, if sunshine is coming down and falling on bare soil, uh, it's what one of uh, my friends, Peter Donovan, likes to call a solar spill. Um, it's solar energy that's been wasted, whereas if it's captured in a plant and it grows, then it's doing something productive in the economy. So I, I tend to think of... Um, Agriculture really is just a biological solar energy business, and the role of the farmer or rancher is managing what they can above the ground to allow that system to maximize its capture of so and cycling of solar energy. Yeah, if you're listening here uh, to what Russ is saying and you want to see some great examples, he's got some fantastic videos on his site that I, I watched here recently. The the canopy and, and you go into some dry areas on those videos, you know, 14 inches of rainfall, 16 inches of rainfall. And the canopy between the person doing this multi-paddock grazing and the neighbor is, it's just, I mean, it's indisputable how, how much of a difference it makes in terms of, it looks, uh, obviously it's retaining more water. Uh, there's a, a lot more canopy, a lot more, a lot less of that sunlight wasted, kind of like what you're talking about. Um, right. Very interesting stuff. Now, when you say paddock, you, you're, you're referring to just a pen, right, of sorts? Um, well, yeah, pen kind of implies something physical and really... A restraining a paddock is something that's a temporary small area in which the animals are allowed to graze and move frequently. Typically, in most cases, the animal are moving once a day. Some of the more um, extreme practitioners and uh, depending on seasonality might move animals multiple times a day. So a paddock might be an acre or two. Um, it it kind of depends on forage availability um, and uh, herd size. Uh, and then move frequently. And other, other people are doing really interesting things. Uh, that paddock can be formed with uh, single polywire electric fencing that's hooked up to a solar charger to maintain a, a charge that kind of 
uh, keep the animals in that space. Some of the practitioners in the open air and space are um, uh, getting back into the business of, of tapping into the herding instinct of animals to kind of train them to stay together on their own more in some of the big dry open places. Um, but they're all the same principles. It's, it's a matter of keeping the animals close together and moving frequently. Uh, and when they do that, the relationship between the, the animal and the grass, I, I liken it to like the relationship between bees and flowers. It's very symbiotic. Both benefit uh, by interacting with one another um, in, in a way that represents how they might have um, evolved and grew in a natural environment. I can hear some of the, the cattle ranching skeptics out there listening, saying, well, that, that sounds really great if you've got, you know, a couple cows in the backyard. But trying to move paddocks every day on, you know, at scale, uh, that seems like a lot of work. Uh, how do you handle that part? So um, we operate in the southeastern United States where um, the paddock size is pretty small. It's pretty easy. Uh, you can throw paddocks up and down in less than an hour easily and move, move the animals. Um, it, it's really no, no, no big task at all. Um, when you get into the open areas uh, and, and drier areas of the West, um, I don't have any personal experience there. Um, but again, I, I, I think the, uh, the practitioners are just learning to work with their cattle on a more regular basis. So um, that, that, that's not where I have my own experience though. Sure. Do you know, I know that's not where you, where you all are, are working, but do you know those Northern guys that during the winter time do, mm -hmm. uh, how do, how do they handle that? I'd, I'd keep on rolling. In fact, I was just looking at a, uh, a little video series this morning. Um, one of the Alberta grazing agencies had put up a series of, uh, a, a series of videos on how to manage, uh, cattle outdoors in the winter. Um, where, um, yeah, keep, keep them grazing. A lot of people use bale grazing, um, but there's still available forage available in the snow and the animals and know how to dig it out of there and make use of it. Uh, one of my very good friends, Dr. Jason Roundtree at Michigan state, uh, tends to, um, keep his animals, uh, closer up to the uh, research station and does a lot of bale grazing in the winter. Um, so, you know, but the animals don't come inside and snuggle by the fireplace or anything like that. Uh, in fact, my partner today, this week is uh, Dr. Alan Williams is up in uh, northwest Minnesota. Uh, I, I haven't spoken to him in a few days. He's out of cell phone range. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, last time I talked to him, it was well below zero. And he said I was colder than heck, but uh, the cattle were doing great. So um, mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes we forget that, that animals, um, you know, grew up outside. Uh, they're, they're used to being in an open environment. And so even in the wintertime, uh, smart grazers can continue to apply these methods um, outdoors. Have you all over time tweaked uh, the size of paddocks per, you know, per cow and kind of how often you rotate to try to optimize that? Or how do you know if somebody wanted to try this tomorrow, how would they know how many cows to put in what square foot and when to rotate? It's all a matter of um, forage availability. Um, and it's just a kind of some simple spreadsheet mathematics, uh, if you will, to um, first figure out how much forage you have per acre. And in order for this to work, as crazy as it sounds, you want to what we call uh, eat half, um, leave half. Um, you actually 
don't want to graze the grass all the way to the ground. You want to eat about half of it. Um, part of the trample that is left behind helps feed the soil microbiology. It also helps provide a basis for the grass to regrow faster. So you basically, um, in the math, figure out how much forage you have, figure out you're going to eat half of it. Each animal needs to eat about 3% of its body mass per day. Um, and then you figure out what your paddock size is, has to be in a day, depending on your forage availability. And that's how big you make your paddock. Uh, and then you move it once a day. And if you're going to move your animals twice a day, then you make the paddock half as big um, and then move them frequently. So it's kind of the recipe side. Now, the other thing that becomes important um, for the practitioners in this space is to be able to uh, read the landscape, um, depending, you know, if, it, if it's... Uh, Okay, everything's rocking along well, things have been moist but not muddy, then you're going to go pretty intense. But if it's getting kind of muddy, maybe you back off a bit. You don't want to tear up the soil too much. Or if it's dry, maybe you back off a bit. Sometimes one of the things that's a bit counterintuitive is if you have some difficult areas that kind of need to improve faster, one of the best ways to do that is increase your stocking density or the instantaneous rate at which you have animals on the pasture. Um, and, and so if, if you got an area you kind of want to work over really good, um, increase your stuff, best way to increase your stocking density is to move the animals more frequently. So go through a period of a couple of days where you're moving them a couple of times a day and, and that will help that particular area that you're working on, uh, improve faster. And how do you handle the water? I imagine you got to move water tanks with them or, or what, what's typically used there? Uh, some people do move flexible line of water. Uh, what we tend to prefer, and I, I think where the leading practitioners are, is to basically build in a backbone of underground uh, just poly pipe with simple quick connect latches. Um, I think, think of it as like a sprinkler system on your lawn, but you just leave the connections open and then you can kind of drag a small um uh, a small uh, tub or trough around and, and reconnect it to any one of those things at any time. And one of the other things that's really important is you don't need to actually put a, um, a water source in each and every paddock. So you don't need to move it all the time that the animals will come back to wherever the water point is over time without regrazing. They'll always go back to the fresh grass. So if you say set up a week's worth of paddock in one place and then move the animals down in that direction, you can leave the water where they started on Monday morning um, and then just move it once a week. So you don't necessarily have to move water once a day. That makes sense. Yeah. And as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking, okay, well, obviously the, the big sort of paradigm shift is the focus on the soil and rebuilding, re rebuilding the soil through uh, the canopy, through the symbiotic relationships you're talking about between the soil roots and the microorganisms. Um, why couldn't this be done with other ruminants or is it, are other people using this for dairy or sheep or goats or, yeah, dairy, absolutely. Um, I'm looking forward this fall. I'm on the board of a group called the Grassfed Exchange. Our conference is coming up in uh, Albany, New York this next September. Um, and we're going to be touring the Maple Hill Creamery uh, Farms. I think it's the Dharma Lee Farm specifically. Um, uh, Phyllis and, and uh, Paul Van Amberg that um, operated dairy up there. Uh, I tend to spend my time because that's what we focus on around looking at different uh, beef places. Some people um, are just exceptional, at, you know, layering in a multiple species. Gabe Brown, one of the pioneers, is running hogs, sheep, chickens. 
uh, up in North Dakota. Some people, um, you know, one of the leading practitioners down under in Australia, Colin Sice, is uh, almost exclusively the best of my knowledge of sheep farmers. So he does the same thing with with sheep. And uh, really, it's the same principles. It uh, kind of whatever works in your landscape, uh, what makes sense from a market perspective. Um, you know, any, any anything works. It's again, it's that symbiotic relationship between things that eat grass um, and the grass itself that allow the the soil to kind of improve in its health and make the whole system work. There seems to be you know a lot of different ways you could take a business model using these principles. What, what's the business model of Standard Soil? Our focus is on being an operator, so um, we we come in and. Uh, you know, we'll own the cattle and operate the cattle and then uh, sell the cattle. Um, and, and, you know, the principles will work at any stage, um, w- whether you're a cow-calf producer or a stocker or even a full grass-fed finisher, the methods are pretty, pretty much the same wherever you go. So um, anyway, that's, that, that's our focus. And we're just getting started. My partners have been doing this for a while, so... Um, we're just preparing our first opportunities now and uh, kind of branching off from uh, doing it on small scale to doing it big scale. And you, through your experience at Shell, you've been around startups a long time. What's different about this startup than, than say, a tech startup? Well, the basic dynamics are the same. Um, you have an idea, you have to develop it, you got to test it through interaction with the market. You got to sell it to other people and get their support and participation, whether that's investors or customers. Um, you know, I, I learned even though, you know, my special focus was in a very advanced energy technology, that, it, that it's not the technological things that make innovation challenging, it's the sociological things. It's how, how do we learn and test new ideas, um, especially when they're very unusual compared to um, the things that we know and understand. Um, so, so really, um, it's pretty pretty similar to what I'm used to. Um, in, in the particular case here, what may be different is that I'm used to spending time at kind of the very bleeding edge of kind of still in R&D um, innovation space where those challenges are really, really high. And this kind of adaptive grazing uh, and regenerative agriculture is well beyond that now. There are dozens of practitioners that are you know, applying things in various forms uh, all around the country and even the world. And and so, it, you know, we're just kind of more mature here. What we've done here is, in our case, we're just working to wrap a new business model around trying to scale up something that many other people have already proven. So um, that, that is just a different stage of maturity of, of where the idea is. But otherwise, it's surprisingly the same. One of the things I find fascinating just about the whole concept is you kind of uh, obviously there's a clear in environmental impact case. However, a lot of the rhetoric among uh, folks very committed to sustainable agriculture right now seems to be in that animal agriculture is generally bad, right? Uh, that right. that we need to all be eating plant-based meats and plant-based everything. What do you say to those folks that say, wow, we see the environmental impact, but really isn't it better just not to eat beef at all? So, um, and I appreciate where they're coming from. What I typically tell those folks is it's not the cow, it's the how. Um, That when it comes to animal agriculture, um, the things that usually 
um, end up causing concern with respect to broader environmental issues are the methods by which we produce them. And, and I, I don't fault people for, uh, you know, doing the best they can with the way things are today um, in, in, in how they do things, because it's allowed us to be very much more productive and feed the world. I think what's interesting here is that we can now take everything we've learned from the success of animal agriculture over you know, the last uh, 100 plus years. And now that we understand this important relationship between animals and grass and sunshine and soil, um, we can develop businesses that do even better and have a very positive uh, environmental impact. We, um, I, I was very humbled and honored to be a co-author on a paper that was published last year in the Journal of Soil and Water Conservation that in essence was a kind of a scientific rebuttal to uh, people, uh, many of whom had suggested, hey, you know, what we really need to do is reduce the ruminants on landscapes. Uh, and what we tried to do in this paper was show that, well, OK, yeah, you could cut down the population of ruminants on landscapes and it might have some benefit in making things less bad. Um, but if you kind of frame it as uh, a challenge to apply the methods differently, you can actually, instead of making something less bad, turn it into an active positive good. And in that paper, we documented how just uh, focusing on the carbon question alone, um, instead of just reducing the carbon footprint of, of livestock production, we could actually turn it into a net sink of carbon for livestock production. And we furthermore uh, kind of brought in some data on uh, soil conservation related to no-till agriculture and other forms of uh, regenerative agriculture into a picture that basically said agriculture actually is surprisingly positioned to be one of the biggest solutions to people that are concerned about our environmental issues instead of um, something to um, a priori say that's an, a regrettable harm that we ought to reduce. So. Um, I, th I think it's a matter of developing a different paradigm, uh, learning to think about things differently. Um, we're still very early in the scientific um, understanding of this space. I think we know some of the big picture principles, but kind of reminds me um, kind of the interaction between livestock production and landscapes reminds me of the stories that I would have heard in my early years in the energy industry of what the energy industry was like back in you know the early 1900s before we had a lot of technology there were a lot of rules of thumb um but you know the, the, kind of the advanced science hadn't really kind of come into some of the management techniques yet and i i think that's where we're going here with uh, this stuff and i know I, I i'm sure you talk about it with some of your gas precision agriculture um you know, I think all that technology is going to help this space as well. I've spent a fair amount of time with uh, drone and satellite imaging data, looking for ways that we can understand uh, soil health and pasture health. Um, it's just instead of trying to use precision agriculture to figure out where I can, you know, squeeze another drop out of not putting fertilizer when I don't need it, I can actually use it to manage my ecosystem in a way that maximizes its productivity without the fertilizer. Um, and uh, so, so it's kind of a, a just a different approach. I've never done a side by side comparison, but can you taste the difference instantly between a grass finished beef steak and a corn finished steak? Yeah, I mean, I actually can. Although what I tell you is that um, 
Um, one of the challenges that grass-fed beef production still has to overcome is it's not as simple as throwing animals out in a pasture. Um, and, and so a lot of the grass-fed beef you have today, uh, even if it's truly grass-fed, um, if it hasn't been uh, produced on an acre of land with really good superior forage quality, nutrient-dense forage, you can get some off-flavored meats. So sometimes you can tell a grass-fed steak if you buy it at the farmer's market, um, that it's just, well, not so hot, right? Maybe you feel good about eating it, but you don't feel good eating it. <laughs> and, uh, and on the other hand, um, you know, for people that are really good at, uh, really good at this, uh, it's, it's, uh, consistent, high quality. I, uh, wanted to make a point to my neighbors here, um, uh, last year. And uh, my partner currently is, uh, associated with a retail uh, wholesale and retail uh, producer called Joyce Farms and uh, Joyce and, and the people that produce for Joyce produce a consistent high quality uh, beef that if, if you taste it compared to any grain fed steak I've ever had, you know, it'll, it'll be off the charts and other local producers. I buy my uh, right now until we're in uh, production. Uh, my good friend, Jonathan Cobb, who's up near, uh, Temple, Texas produces the stuff that we buy, um, and it's uh, it, it's it's awesome stuff. And now, if I have if I I mean I haven't bought a, a grain fed steak at a grocery store, but if I go to a restaurant now, even the nice ones, I frankly uh, I don't order steak very often anymore because it, it just doesn't give me the quality, uh, taste, and flavor experience that I'm used to with the really good grass fed producers. Okay, I'm getting hungry now. We're gonna have to wrap this thing up pretty soon. Um, the uh, on the video, I noticed the producers featured were talking about their cocktail mix, and mm -hmm. and yep. uh, can you talk about that? I think that probably speaks to what you're saying. This is how they create a superior product is through through their uh, their the type of forges they're using, right? Yeah, very much. Um, so the best way to think of the cocktail mix from the perspective of the animal is it's like letting the animal graze on a salad bar. Right. You want a lot of diversity. Um, each one of those things has different, each species in a cocktail mix will have different nutrient profiles that together provide maximum nutrition to the animal. Now, in many cases, that cocktail mix um, has been synthetically uh, planted. So a cover crop um, with multi-species in it. Um, and so you can kind of curate that optimal salad bar that you're looking for. But also in many cases, once you reinvigorate this um, seed, native seed bank uh, in healthy soils, what you'll find is a, a nice balance of species starting to naturally produce in the system once again. Um, and so grasses, legumes, and forbs together uh, make a optimal uh, mix in any animal's diet. And um, it's just like if you or I, I mean, a, a good steak is healthy, but it's good to have vegetables uh, with it as well, and usually multiple kinds, and, and animals are no different. So really seeking to have maximum diversity in forage um, is really important. Russ, as you look ahead uh, 20 years from now, how, how significant do you see this adaptive multipatic grazing being to the, the U.S. beef industry at that time? Uh, well, I think it's um, pretty darn important, I guess. That's where I'm spending my own uh, effort these days. Um, I, I think um, what we'll find is that by 
applying innovative grazing and other production techniques like we talked about no-till agriculture, permaculture, silvopasture, grazing uh, in amongst brush and trees as well, that all of these things fall in the category of capturing more and more sunlight and cycling it in uh, the ecosystem and ultimately a part of our own healthy food system. So, um, I, and I really think that, um, you know, the thing that makes our business work is that when you do that well, um, nature pr provides the energy and all the nutrients so your costs go down and your productivity goes up. Um, the, the people that I know that have been the leading pioneers in this space, um, almost to a one, got into it because they went through uh, a challenging crisis of some kind that, that they really struggled in farming. And then once they figured out how to make this work, they've all become highly prosperous um, and, and are doing quite well on their own. Now, it's not like an overnight uh, flip the light switch for many people, um, but, but they've learned principles that allow them to run more prosperous, healthy uh, businesses that uh, you know, are both profitable and as well as enjoyable to be a part of. So you know, if that's true and if that scales, um, then, you know, 20 years from now, I would, I would like to think that, um, you know, the whole range of regenerative agricultural practices become the norm, um, and kind of the next generation of agriculture. Um, why would you not use free sunshine, um, if, if, if you could, um, instead of having to buy expensive fertilizer, uh, from, from, uh, yesterday's sunshine. I mean, really, uh, synthetic fertilizer is nothing more than a different form of, of uh, captured energy produced from uh, fossil fuels that uh, were sunlight millions of years ago, right? So um, in, in a fitting twist here, I think it's really interesting that we're now learning how we can use concurrent sunlight with uh, the soil that's already there to make a system work. Fascinating. Well, I, I can't wait to continue to watch you do it on a uh, scalable level and, and to see how, how that works. I, I really am excited to learn more about this and uh, to keep in touch here, if somebody else listening wants to keep in touch or learn more about this, Russ, where can they go? So they can uh, go to our website, standardsoil.com, or uh, follow us on Twitter. It's just at Standard Soil, or uh, we do have a Facebook post up. We're, we're just getting started, so all that's pretty mature, but uh, you can at least uh, keep an eye on things happening there and see what we're up to. Great. Well, I think it's time for, for us to go get a, a steak and a cocktail of our own. Great, Tim. Good talking to you. Russ for being on the show today, and I just find that stuff really fascinating, how we are looking at ways to work with Mother Nature to better utilize the sunlight and the soil so that we can produce the very best product the most efficiently way possible for generations to come. So I encourage you to check out Russ's website, standardsoil.com. Also, it's been a little bit since I've made this request. If you would, please just do me one favor if you haven't yet. Hop on to iTunes, find our show, The Future of Agriculture, and leave us a positive review. This helps other people realize that agriculture is interesting and these stories are worth listening to and will drive extra people to this show. And downloads will create this momentum that allow other people to find out about the future of agriculture. Really appreciate you doing that. It'll take 30 seconds of your time and it means a lot to me. We will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G, 
grad.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.